0: James 4, 7 through 10, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, cleanse your hands sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded, be miserable and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you pray. Father, we need to have humble and regularly repentant hearts. So this morning, we need to learn more about just that and how we approach you day after day, morning by morning, in the evening, wherever not, whenever it might be that we need to seek you. Guide us through the text and be with us during this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I, I believe I have shared this story with you before, um, and so if not, or if I have, sorry, if I haven't, you get to hear it for the first time, uh, but I have said that when I was in high school, I worked at an ice cream shop uh, that was at least about 20 pounds ago um, because you get to eat ice cream, so not, a, not to put me and ice cream in the same room, not the best decision and so I would work at this ice cream shop and uh, often by myself, just kind of close it out. And uh, I remember clearly one time this lady came in and she asked me this question, are you born again? I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian. Yeah, but are you born again? And all of a sudden I'm like, I'm in a different, I'm in a, I need a different dictionary for whatever we're talking about. Like there were, I was like, I, I don't know, like, I wasn't, I'm I'm applying how I thought about it at the time, but, like, being born again, John chapter 3, like, I think through faith in Jesus, you're born again, so I don't understand, like, are you a Christian, but are you born again? It's kind of like that sometimes people make a distinction between are you a Christian, well, are you a disciple? And you're just like, are are we splitting hairs here? But it's funny how we all develop a certain lexicon. There's a certain way we talk about Jesus, and there's certain, certain, uh, keywords that we look for to know if a place or a pastor is safe, right? Uh, you know, if I say like the order of salvation, people with a Reformed background are like, oh, thank you, God, uh, right? If I say something like that, uh, or if I, you know, quote Calvin, it's like, okay, Hans is safe, but uh, you know, if I quote someone else, they're like, "Well, hold on, I'm a little worried about your theology now, bud. Um, we all have these kind of built-up ways that we uses filters for how people talk and if they don't use the q uh, words that we expect them to use we then don't really know what they mean and how how we're supposed to be talking you can have a whole conversation with somebody and you didn't realize that to them a disciple was a super christian and a christian was a normal person right like the disciple is the one who's really serious about their faith and the christian is the one who's just kind of like you yeah, know whatever jesus loves me and I think those types of environments are all really, really funny. Are you a disciple? Well, yeah, I am a disciple. But this is how church can be for many people, even this morning. You know, some people walk in, they're like, I don't know. Like, when you go to our membership class, we give you our doctrinal statement, but we don't give you the uh, code words. Maybe we should. Uh, but people walk in, and they go, I don't really know what to say here. I don't know. I don't know how we how we operate. I don't know what words are okay, what words are not. Like, do you guys cuss here, or do you do this? Uh, and 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 there's kind of this odd feeling that we have of what what is kind of the standard operating procedures. I'm going to give you a word that's in the Bible uh, that you may or may not have a real language for. That word is repent. Repent. Uh, at LSU, we had what was called Free Speech Alley. We still have it, uh, but Free Speech Alley was a place where you could sign up and basically say whatever you wanted, uh, right? That's, that's what it's there for. It's there to communicate your thoughts and opinions on it. Uh, so uh, there was often a church that would come, I believe, from Mississippi, uh, and they were the sandwich board preachers, and they would uh, point everybody out on campus as you would walk by them, be like, "And you need to repent." And they would just be telling you all your sins and everything that was going on. They didn't know who you were, but they just keep yelling at you, repent, repent, repent. Uh, you might hear this even like as jokes. Like you're in a community group and somebody's like, oh, do you need to repent of that, brother? And they're laughing about it. And maybe you're a new believer and you're like, I didn't know repentance was like a laughing thing. Uh, like, is that something that we're supposed to laugh about? Is that something that's kind of cool to joke about? Because if so, yeah, cool, repent, repent, right? Like, as we talk, we don't realize that our language is affecting how people view things. So... Um, if I asked you, hey, define repentance for me, um, we'd probably all have, yeah, like, the Venn diagram would be close, but we'd all have a harder time figuring out what it actually, what it meant. What does it mean to repent? How do you repent? What does it, it look like when you've been repentant, right? Do you just say, I repent, like Michael Scott? I declare bankruptcy. You go, you can't just declare bankruptcy, right? Like, it's a process. And so, when we talk about repentance, you don't just say, I repent, and then magically God's like, oh, okay, they used the word, right? Like, they, they said repent and good. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that, but then you go, well, how does it work? That's what today's passage is actually going to get to show us. Remember verses 1 through 6 where uh, James is really highlighting the lack of faithfulness that his congregation has. And he is showing them that God has an expectation over here and you're living in this quarreling, backbiting, frustrated, Facebook post, you know, you know, rage-like kind of world. God's desire for you is over here. You're living over there. Now what has happened, but there's quite a chasm between these two worlds. The same thing happens when you come to Christ for the first time, right? You put your faith in Jesus. And you realize there's a gap between his character and you, And you go, what in the world do I have to do? In fact, the gospel explanation or illustration that I was kind of trained on was the bridge illustration. If you're familiar with like Navigators, you're familiar with the bridge illustration where you draw you and God. There's this gap between. You put a cross in the middle to explain how Jesus is the way for you to get from where you are to where God is. Uh, So that's, that's language that I'm familiar with, and that's what repentance really is. But today's passage then moves us to how that is actually going to look. So by the end of the morning, we'll be able to go, this is what repentance is. This is how James talks about it. And I really do find that these few verses illustrate for us repentance. They don't say, James doesn't go, let me tell you what repentance is. But as we look at what he's doing, he's created this tension between their behavior and God's character. Now he's going to give them a response, which is kind of an important thing to do. When you realize you're sinful, you go, what do I do about it? What I do about this now new thing that I've realized? And so we're going to see what it is and how it comes about. We've seen God is jealous uh, in the previous passage. And now responding to him requires repentance. We're going to go through this. Uh, I'm using like A's and B's in my verse break- breakdowns. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with what that is, it, it basically means like the first part of that verse or the second part of that verse. Because I think the verse divisions don't help you see James' kind of movement through it. So when I say like 7a, I'm going to talk about the first part of verse 7, because remember the verse divisions aren't inspired. And so, so when we do that, we, we, somebody took their best stab at organizing it, uh, but the verse divisions aren't inspired, so we, don't, we are not beholden to them to make sense of what the passage is saying. If that were the case, then most believers from all time are kind of up a creek. Uh, so we're not beholden to them. So we're going to kind of I'm going to kind of mark as we go. But this is the first thing that we'll see in the first half of verse seven. That submission to God marks or identifies our repentance. That submission to God marks it. And submission to God is really uh, no small part of what we're supposed to do. James says, therefore, right? If you see a therefore, ask what is it. Therefore, uh, so therefore, submit to God. If you've been living in a way that that God is uh, not asking of you, that is disobedient to who He is, therefore, submit to God. So submission to God is what really does mark us. When we realize that we've been living proudly and we are not considering God, we then put ourselves under His authority and the rules that govern His kingdom. We go, I'm not not in charge here. Sinfulness is essentially us saying, I'm in charge and I know better. Submission to God marks that kind of move of repentance to go, no, it's your kingdom come, your will be done, I've been living my own. And so submission to God is that movement and recognition that God has asked something of us and we haven't done it. Repentance that first idea is always marked with submission to God as a part of it. It's a kind of a necessary move because you have to go, Well, I am I'm I'm gonna have to submit to my way or God's way. God's way seems better. Thought my way was pretty good, but God's way seems better, so therefore, submit to God, because that's what He would ask of you. It's His authority, His power, His Kingdom, His way. So you are under his authority. Then, in James' style, because James is going to kind of say something, illustrate something, and say it. That's his style. He's going to now illustrate what submission to God looks like. I submit to God, but how? You know, do you just, again, do you just say, I submit to you? But there's ways that he's going to characterize what submission to God looks like. And in the next half verse and the other one, the end of seven and into eight, We're going to see this kind of couplet. Resist Satan and draw near to God. Resist Satan and draw near to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You feel kind of how those go together? I'm going to resist this. He's going to leave. I'm going to move toward God. God's going to draw near. The readers have been living for themselves, they have been living according to their own ways, they're being friends with the world, and they're being enemies of God, and so James says resist the devil, right? Because what are they doing? They're putting themselves, they're following his way, his rule, his authority, right? He's called the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and so they are living according to one kingdom, but they realize that God has an expectation that they live under another. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why, why resist? We talk about fleeing temptation, specifically like uh, flee sexual temptation, flee sexual immorality. So why resist the devil, right? And he will flee. Why that language for a part of repentance? There are times that we need to flee. There are times where just, yeah, I don't need to be in this place, maybe like Joseph did. I'm out of here. However, there are forces all around you in this world that you aren't able to rid yourself from. You can't rid yourself from, you know, necessarily the media around you, the billboards that you see, and the things that you get in the mail, and the way that people around you might talk, and some of the environments that you'll be a part of. You can't rid yourself of that. You're not going to be a whole, as much as we all feel like we have been. That there's always influences that might tempt you or allure you. And so what James is saying is, don't go that way. Resist that. Resist that. And then the temptation or allure doesn't become as bright or feel as strong. And there's an important principle here that we need to see. That when, through the Spirit, we resist temptation, the temptation becomes less pressing. Now, this doesn't happen in every way perfectly. Where you say, well, you told me. Because some temptations and addictions are really, really hard to resist. It feels like you're just constantly saying, I did it again, I did it again, I did it again, I did it again. Well, Jesus gives us language for that, too, which is you're kind of forgiven every time. Uh, you know, 70 times 7, that, that forgiveness exists for us in Christ, but we are able to resist what's going on because, right, James is talking to this church, he goes, you can resist these temptations, belong to God, so resist the devil. Those temptations to fight, to quarrel, to bicker, to be angry, to be rude, for your speech to be disparaging, those temptations that you feel, they'll leave. But he doesn't just kind of leave with that. Because when you leave with that, what happens? You just create a vacuum that you have to fill. So resist the devil and he will flee from you. Other side, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. So James gives us the opposite behavior. Draw near to God. God draws near to us. So when we resist the temptation, we also run to God. You see that? And so it's not just you stand here forever and go, I'm going to resist this. But even in resisting and running to God, you're showing resistance, right? Because you're aligning yourself back with him. So I'm not going over here. I'm running, to, I'm running to God. And what does God say? God's always there. He's not like, you know what? This is enough. I'm tired of you doing this. This is the 15th time. you yeah, like, 15th, right? You were created by God, and God created you to be in a relationship with Him. But you can't be living in that relationship while being friends with the world. You have to live in that relationship with God. So in regard to our repentance, haven't used that word in a while, we must walk in the right way near God and focus upon Him. When this happens, we walk freely and openly and joyfully. So resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And then he uses language that you saw in the video. Cleanse your hands, purify your heart. This is, this is a bit of an interesting one, isn't it? Cleanse your hands and purify your heart. This is just the second half of verse 8. Resist the devil, he will flee. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Then cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, the double language is something that James has used before, hasn't he? He's talking about wisdom. If anybody wants wisdom, he should ask God. But when he asks, he should believe and not doubt. For such a man, uh, really, he's not going to get what he receives because he's like a wave at sea, blown and tossed by the wind. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so James is concerned about the church being double-minded or duplicitous, to act in ways inconsistent with who they are. And he'll say, then, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Well, if you're familiar with a song called Give Us Clean Hands, you might be familiar with the passage that says that same idea. It's in the book of Psalms, verse 20 or chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, who shall ascend? the hill of the Lord, who can go into His presence, who shall stand in His holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He who can do this, the one with clean hands and a pure heart. This is interesting when we talk about evangelism. And this works in some cultures, especially with worldviews who are really focused on ritual cleaning, which we clearly are not. Like the hand sanitizer stations are as ritually clean as many people have been in a long time. So we don't really understand kind of this idea of ritual bathing or ritual washing uh, that comes as you go to the temple and you uh, seek to meet God and you cleanse yourself. Uh, and remember, Jesus got Jesus got in trouble with the uh, leaders of the church or, or the synagogues because they saw him not washing the right way. Your disciples aren't washing the right way. Like, what's going on with that? So he's saying, "Cleanse your hands," using this idea from Psalm 24, and purify your hearts. And what James is highlighting, I think, with the psalm in his background, is that you have to come to God totally clean. But the interesting evangelistic idea is to say to somebody, how do you clean your heart? How do you clean your heart? Like by eating celery all day. Like no, that's like, that's your physical heart. But how do you clean that seat of emotion and affection and desire? How do you, how do you cleanse a concept that we all understand? Well, I just feel it in my heart. Really? Like if I got an X-ray machine, you know, I could see it? I could see the feeling? Well, no, that's not what I mean. I mean I, I mean I know it's there. So with something that, that is in a sense metaphorical, the language that we use for it, how do you clean it? You got a big problem. But what is promised to those who put their faith in Jesus, but the Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart? It's a new covenant promise. Holy Spirit, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will remove your sin. I will give you new life. That is what we get in Christ. And so the Christian is able to approach God with clean hands and a pure heart. James is concerned both with your external behavior that is a demonstration of the heart of your posture. These things. It's the same thing that we did when we talked about our speech, isn't it? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, there's impurity here. There's impurity here. There's deceit here. There's deceit here. There's anger here. There's anger here. You can just kind of follow it. In the same way, if there's joy here, there's joy here. If there's contentment here, there's contentment here. It shows us that through Christ, we are able to be totally clean, totally clean, and approach God with both an internal and external posture of obedience. The heart matters. We can't just whitewash our behavior, go, I'm doing the right thing. It's nice that you're nice, but if the heart hasn't changed, there's really been no change. So, again, going to Christ in that aspect is a part of our repentance. If we confess our sins, it's 1 John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That we seek to be clean and pure and right with God in this. So, uh, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. And then he gets into this kind of verse that we don't really deal with a lot. This idea of grieving over your sin. Grieving over your sin. In verse 9. This is, grief is not a thing we like in our culture. We kind of want to jump past feeling sorrow for what we have gone through and just kind of move back to, so are we good? Right? If you talk to your kids and caught them in something, uh, they want to kind of jump right to, are we good now? Are things okay? Are you still mad at me? Right? Like that, like that's that kind of part. So we, we jump over that, that weight and significance of sorrow to try to get to restoration, but James puts right in here this language. Look in verse 9, be miserable. What? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I don't want that. And we go, well, it's good to be with the Lord. These gatherings should be joyful gatherings. You're absolutely right. They should. But when we realize that we have been acting in a way inconsistent with God, it should break us. It should bother us. It should make us uncomfortable, dissatisfied. In whatever ways we can kind of talk about that, I, I, I want you to be bothered <laughs> by your sin. And at the same time, recognize the, recognize the grace that exists for you. But don't jump over being bothered. When you start to see the relational carnage that has come from your disobedience. The people who don't want to come near you. The family that doesn't invite you over to functions because they know where it will go the friends who walk on eggshells around you because they don't want to offend you or bother you because they know what will happen. When we start to see the consequences, even relationally, of our sin, when we are submitted to God, and we seek to be restored and right with Him, we should be broken and bothered over what we've done. For how long? I don't know likely longer than we go most times. But to be broken over your sin is okay. To, to be sorry that you sinned is okay. Now, you go, well, there's grace for you. We're going to get to that. James doesn't leave us hanging. But he also has no problem saying, when you see your sin... It gets uncomfortable, doesn't it? We don't go there sometimes because we're afraid of what we might find. Or we feel that sorrow is weak. Or we haven't fully seen the consequences of those things. We don't want to go all the way and, you know, like the psalmist says, Lord, search me and know me. Because if we pray that, and he starts highlighting aspects of our heart that are disobedient, It is one of the ugliest things. And as we said last week, this whole uh, pandemic has been a wonderful display of our wickedness. And our opinions and our frustrations and our things we want to post and things we want to say and things we want to do. And our disagreements with others and our judgments of our friends and our judgments of our family and our judgments of our leaders because we think that they're ridiculous. Or whatever it might be, right? These things reveal the ugliness that often resides inside And because we know what the Lord would have for us, it's okay to weep over your sin, to grieve that. Second Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. To recognize who God is, while concurrently recognizing who you are, and then having there that godly grief that's born from a recognition of His character, it's a good thing. It is a gracious thing to see those. To realize that you're more concerned about yourself than you are the Lord is a gracious thing for God to do. To realize that you're angry and embittered and judgmental. It's a gracious thing for God to show you. Why? Because he has something better than where you are. Verse 10. Verse 10 says this, that humility before God leads to restoration. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves, same idea of therefore submit to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and what? He will exalt you. This shows us God's response to our repentance, doesn't it? That God doesn't leave us where we are. He doesn't just say, okay, well, you're just done for over there, buddy. Now humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. He will bring you to a place that you have never been, and restore you in a relationship that you want. Which is funny because when we do the opposite and we try to exalt ourselves, we just become angry and bothered and frustrated. And probably a little annoying. But when we go to the Lord, He brings us a place that we could have never brought ourselves. He lifts our eyes and He lifts our heart and He fills us with joy. Again, remember David's prayer in the Psalms Restore the joy of my salvation. Not restore my salvation. But restore the joy of my salvation, which comes in the middle of statements of repentance about realizing just how wicked his heart can be and how harmful his decisions are the way they affect others. He goes to God and he says to God, restore the joy that I had. If we reject this idea of humility before God and we try to exalt ourselves, we end up losing. But when we approach God, we are exalted and brought into a restored relationship with Him that we did not ever think we could have had. We get all of God for us. So, back to the beginning. When Christians throw words around and you're not sure what they mean. Let's take James 4, 7 through 10. This is a long sentence, but I had to shoehorn some ideas into it. What is repentance? Repentance is humbly and sorrowfully turning from our sin and returning to God in order to be restored to a right relationship with Him. That's what it is, humbly and sorrowfully turning from our sin and returning to God. Now, some people in the room might hear that word returning and going, wait a minute, wait a minute, for the person who's coming to faith for the first time, like, there's no return the first time. You have to remember where we came from and how God created us. God created us to be with him. So we are returning to what the original design was. Even if we are finding God for the first time, it's not the first time for God because He knows your name. You're His creation. He's not unaware of who you are until you repent. He's like, oh, oh my gosh, hey, hey Peter, could you check the roll? I didn't see them on there. You are God's creation. Through that repentance for the first time, you become God's child. For the believer in the room, it's the same kind of thing, right? You seek restoration to the relationship that God has given you in His Son. So you have to confess your sin, be returned to Him. So for the believer and the unbeliever in the room, the idea is the same, but we're not returning to God if you're in Christ for your salvation. You're returning to God for the restoration of that right relationship that, because you're a fool, has turned and gone a little sideways. For the person in this room this morning who's not a believer, you're going to God and you're saying, Jesus paid it all. I can't do this. I've tried to live for myself and it's gotten me nowhere. I trust you and I want to be restored. That's what repentance is. That's how repentance works. James' readers read and realize the way that they have been living, and they're being called to humble themselves before the Lord and turn to God, to be brought into that restored relationship that only God can do. The same goes for you and for me. I create for myself, and this is not perfect, but a regular habit, a daily habit of asking forgiveness of things that I've done that day or the day before. Every 24-hour period brings enough things that I remember I did wrong, let alone all the things that I've forgotten. So it's a constant habit of going back to the Lord and asking forgiveness. And the joy is verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. I don't live In the ash heap. I don't stay there. Though that could be a part of my restoration journey. But I don't stay there. I am restored. With God. Brought back into that relationship with him. That I can find. Joy. And life. Because of what he's done. Last week. Finished with the question. Where might you need to repent? If you ask yourself that question or new things have come up even in the past week because of what we read in verses 7 through 10, now you know what to do with it. To go back to the Lord and seek restoration and the joy that comes in being with Him. Not living In a frustrated, duplicitous, angry, embittered life. But a joyful and restored one. Because of what Jesus has done and that he has never left us. We get to enjoy that relationship. And he's not like, well do 25 more things first. Then. No. Forgiveness is immediate at the point of our salvation. And then as we read in 1 John 1, 9, every other time while we're in that relationship with the Lord that He has secured for us, every other time we go before Him and we ask forgiveness for whatever we did that harmed the relationship that we have, done, given. But sometimes the process of realizing, recognizing, and turning from that sin is a bit painful, isn't it? And that's good and gracious of God to do. Because if we're convicted by our sin, hear me on this, if we're convicted by our sin, then the Spirit is at work. Because that's the work of the Spirit. So if we're bothered by something, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor and just figure out why. Don't stuff it down. Because the Spirit convicts us according to sin. If there's something nagging at you, Don't run from it. Think about it. Ask the Lord to reveal to you what it is so that you can confess it and turn to Him. Again, it's a good and gracious thing to do.